Thank you for listening to Hope Fellowship Church in Jaffrey, New Hampshire. We're currently going through a sermon series about King David in 2 Samuel. David was a shadow of Jesus, the King of Kings who had come to save us from our sin and offer us eternal life. If you would like to learn more about our ministry, please visit hopejaffrey.org. Before we jump right into uh, 2 Samuel 19, I'll just open with some opening introduction. Today's the fallout of sin and the restoration of Jesus. I found this quote from J.D. Greer on the fallout of sin in this chapter. He says, the fallout of sin is like that of a nuclear disaster. Its impact is immeasurable. As Christians, we like to think that Jesus forgives our sin and takes away the blame of guilt away. And this is without doubt true. Jesus delivers us from the guilt and blame of sin. The stain of sin is washed away. We stand holy and righteous before a holy God because Christ's blood covers us. However, on this side of eternity, consequences have still remain. And we've been experiencing those consequences in these last couple of chapters. The consequences of David's sin and his pride and his sin with Bathsheba and his murder of Uriah, the downfall of that and the fallout. And it's that word fallout that reminded me of Chernobyl. I don't know if any of you visited Chernobyl. Maybe we could raise hands. You guys go there on vacation or anything? No? Well, this is what you'd find. Uh, Chernobyl, this is a, a, a former... Uh, kind of bumper car carnival area. You've probably seen some of the dystopian pictures of Chernobyl. There's a, in the near this, there's a, um, a former like Ferris wheel and everything. It's, it's one of those like many horror movies and freaky video games and all have been made about Chernobyl because it is one of those places that is eerily creepy. And why is that? Well, as you, many of you know, there was a nuclear explosion that took place there. The explosion of a nuclear reactor in Chernobyl, I think it was, I'm going off my notes here, I should have wrote this down, but in the 1980s or 70s, I think, I can't remember, I wasn't born then, you know, so I don't remember, Uh, but I I remember before that, I want to say that time period. But, but it was this explosion that took place and it was first reported, I was reading online, it was first reported that only two people died in the event. They were trying to cover up and not make it a big deal. But there was eventually later it found that 30 to 50 people were killed instantly when the explosion took place under uh, simply human error and human um, disregard for this, the seriousness of what was going on in that nuclear reactor. And they ignored so much protocol and all of these things and they ignored it. And then eventually close to 200 more within days died from radiation sickness. And then millions upon millions of radioactive forms of chemical elements escaped into the atmosphere and spread across essentially the entire world, but especially around Belarus, Ukraine, Russia, and really all of Europe, all the way up into Finland, all the way over into uh, uh, England. The, The amount of radioactive material that went up into the air was more than the atomic bombs dropped upon Nagasaki or any of these the wind took these radioactive elements and material, spread it all over. And studies have been done finding radioactive material from that location that they believe has been spread like a blanket almost throughout the world. Millions of acres of forest and farmland were immediately contaminated. And, and although there 
where thousands of people evacuated, hundreds of thousands more remained somewhat near, uh, were put into contaminated areas and all of this. And in addition, in the subsequent years following this time, livestock that were in the area, animals in that area that have been studied, that they've been born with deformities and died early and all of these things. Among humans with several thousand that include radiation-induced illnesses, cancers, and death expected the long-term effects from Chernobyl. The Soviet Union eventually created a circle-shaped exclusion zone, kind of this radius of almost 20 miles uh, centered around the nuclear power plant where no one is allowed to enter. There is even still some, uh, I think before the Ukraine-Russia war, all this stuff, there was uh, tours where you could go and view some of these kinds of things, but still remain outside of the certain exclusion zone to remain far away from this event that took place, the fallout of this chemical disaster, the fallout of all the effects that it took place. One small, one day, one event, small things that led to it, yes, but one massive explosion that essentially affected history of that entire nation and that entire area and absolutely destroyed certain areas there in Chernobyl where no longer is there people living in this place and everything that once used to be fun and enjoying a place, a city thriving with people and workers was a, was a place now that is of like, uh, like an Orwellian dystopian novel kind of thing, an end of the world kind of place. And it reminds us of Genesis 3, the fallout of sin and the Garden of Eden, this utopian situation has, has been flipped on its head to a dystopian end of the world. Sin and death have entered the world and caused this end. And here as we come to the end of Second Samuel, we've been walking through some of the most difficult passages, I could say, and some of the more challenging passages in all of the Old Testament, where last week especially we mentioned how the Bible doesn't sugarcoat life, Right? The Bible doesn't kind of sugarcoat things and make us feel good about life and just pretend like everything's hunky-dory and A-OK all the time. There is really sin in this world. And as we see it on the pages of Scripture, lived out in David's life for all to view and to see, it is like a movie that we're watching of David's life, the rise of David and the fall of David, and how it is that we then respond to that. We're reminded really essentially of the fallout of sin, not just from David, but also from Saul. Chapter 21 talks about more of a time period that happened before all of this. Uh, Kind of at the end, it mentions a story from Saul's life that took place many years before. Really the fallout of Saul's sin and the death and repercussion, the chemical radioactive explosion from Saul's disobedience that took place, but then also from David's life as we've been looking through the, the, the radioactive explosion from David's sin that affected not him alone, not just him alone or his immediate family, but also outside that exclusion zone, you could say, affected so many in the nation and people without that and the world. The commentary says this, or I think it's J.D. Greer again, says that the sins of both Saul and David are like stones thrown into the middle of a pond. The other day we were taking a walk because it was like raining all day long. We had to get out, but my son loves throwing rocks in any puddle or pond, right? You, you know, that's just a thing. If there's a rock, it must be chucked into the water, right? 
And so he'd take those, those rocks and he found one and it was a deep puddle and he chucked it in there and it, and it splooshed right into the puddle and came back and hit him in the face, right? You ever seen that? It's this, this water, this stone that goes into the water, a nice, clean, clear, pure, calm, peaceful body of water. That stone hits the middle of it and then the ripple effect spreads far and wide. It says the initial plunge into the water makes a big splash, but the ripples move from the middle of the pond to the shore and then are back to the middle in innumerable waves and many collisions over time. This is ultimately the nature of sin. One can never truly calculate the fallout of our disobedience against God. You cannot always measure the fallout in perfect ways and the effects that it has, even of like a nuclear disaster. You can try to cover these things up, which is what they've done in Chernobyl, is essentially take that reactor and build this cement location and bury it underground and try to hide it and minimize it, but it still has effects even today. And so in Genesis 3, as though that cover-up might have tried to happen, it could not take place. There had to be something that would come, someone who would come to remove that curse, to remove that, that chemical radiation, to remove it and allow life to thrive again where there was only death. And that is what we're looking for, yearning for in a sense, the fallout of Genesis 3, as we see it experienced in Saul and David. David, this anointed one, and yet we find that he cannot be the one. He falls short, just like the rest of us. So we're left kind of at the end of the story, like, well, what's next? <laughs> you know, who are we really looking to? King David isn't my king, I guess. And so what I want to do is look at chapter 19. We're going to I'll be reading some of these passages. I'll also summarize some of these ideas. We don't have time, obviously, to really dive into all the details of chapter 19, 20, and 21. We're really gonna be looking at the overarching narrative today, this, this bigger idea of what's going on. But in chapter 19, verse one, right before I read verse one, and some of you are like, would you just read the passage already, Pastor? Good night, okay. You, you, some of you weren't here last week, right? You, you, you didn't hear the message from Absalom. Absalom led a revolt against David. This is Absalom, David's own son, so embittered by David's shunning and David's lack of a love for Absalom in some ways. He was embittered. He, he drives a revolt and rebels. Eventually, David literally has an army as he's running. David is running from Jerusalem for his own life. David and Absalom eventually get two armies, kind of like this north-south civil war, and they battle. Thousands are left dead. But in the middle of the battle, Absalom's riding his little donkey through the woods, and Absalom in his glory and his hair. Remember we talked about hair last week? Hair today, goon tomorrow. Is this jogging a memory, right? And so he's riding, and his hair and his head gets caught in the tree branches, and he's left there suspended as his donkey runs away, and he's hanging from a tree. It's quite this crazy story. And then eventually, Joab comes along and spears him. He dies. He's then buried in a pile in a pit. But before that, you remember Absalom's monument that he resurrected to himself? He built for himself. Absalom's monument about himself. And so this is where we're picking the story up. Absalom is dead. 
David has just found out for the first time that Absalom has died in battle. He doesn't know. He actually told his enemy to fight, but bring Absalom alive to me. Take care of the young man, he says, and they do not. And so you'll see what happens. Chapter 19, really in chapter 18, verse 33, it said that the king was deeply moved. He went up to the chamber of the city gate. My son, Absalom, my son, my son. Then chapter 19, verse 1. It was reported to Joab that the king is weeping. David is weeping. He's mourning over Absalom. That day's victory was turned into mourning for all the troops. So they won the battle, but Absalom is dead. David is crying over his son that's passed away. Even though they won a battle and he's going to return to the throne. Because on that day, the troops heard that the king is grieving over his son, verse three. So they returned to the the city quietly that that day, like troops come in when they are humiliated after fleeing in battle. But the king covered his face and cried loudly, my son, Absalom, my son, Absalom, my son. He's crying, he's weeping. Everybody can hear him. Verse five, then Joab went into the house to the king and said, today, you have shamed your soldiers. Those who saved you and your life, as well as your sons, your wives, your concubines, you're shaming them. Why? Well, by loving your enemies and hating those who actually love you. Today, you have made it clear that the commanders and the soldiers, they mean nothing to you. In fact, today, I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead, it'd be fine with you. So Joab, we'll get to it in a moment, but it's like he comes to David and says, get it together, man, okay? Slaps him in the face, right? Verse seven, now get up, go and encourage your soldiers, for I swear by the Lord that if you don't go out, not a man will remain with you tonight. Joab just speaks to him man to man here. This will be worse for you than all the trouble that has come to you in your youth until now. Verse eight, so the king got up, sat in the city gate, and all the people were told, look, the king is sitting in the city gate. Look to him in some ways. Then they all came in the king's presence. Meanwhile, each Israelite had fled to his own tent. And then look at verse nine, because it's, it's, um, it's almost like a summary of the feeling and the tension through these next chapters. Verse nine says, people throughout all the tribes of Israel were arguing. You, see, you get that sense? So that is the backdrop. Everyone was arguing among themselves. They were all on Twitter. And they're, yeah, right? now, okay, right? They're all arguing constantly, right? The king saying, well, the king rescued us from the grass of the enemies, and he saved us from the grass of the Philistines, but now he's fled from the land because of Absalom. And you're like, well, the king led us from the enemies, but, but now he's afraid of his own son, you know? He's afraid of his own shadow, even though, right? That's what is going on, Okay. So this beginning part here, this remorse and languishing of a father, David is, is heartbroken. Even though he's heartbroken over a, an enemy, Absalom, who just led a revolt, took his kingdom, abused David's 10 concubines publicly before the whole nation, but though he has shamed David's name, he's shamed the throne, he's shamed the ark, he's shamed the nation, Absalom has, has done so many evil things, yet... Yet David is still heartbroken over it. This in some ways reminds me really in the sense of just the effects of sin that the, this isn't easy. This is, often I, people will tell me different things that are going on and it's like, this is complicated. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like 
there, there isn't always a clear uh, one plus one equals two, nice little answer here. There's the tentacles of sin reach in and, and start to envelop and entrap and ensnare us. And it's hard to always determine, well, who's right and who's wrong in this situation? How about like, it's just messy and there's a lot of pain and sin causes difficulty, hardship, loss, and sorrow. Like that goes on. David feels the heart of a father who has just lost a son. Yet as a king, he's celebrating and has to lead the nation because he has just been rescued from sheer destruction and death. And the true throne has been preserved by David the anointed one returning to the throne after Absalom has taken it in a coup. So there is a, there's a messy situation, right? It's some family issues. Any of you guys got family issues, right? Okay. (laughs) Family problems, big family problems. David had some big family problems. I'll tell you what. So this guy, um, ultimately in this situation, is is what is going on. And he is feeling this. And yet someone had shared with me this week this fascinating kind of situation that David is beginning to truly experience. Because back in David's um, sin with Bathsheba, and his murder of Uriah and the cover-up, Nathan the prophet comes to him. Do you remember this? And he shares a story about a man and a shepherd and, and sheep and lambs and how he had stolen these sheep. And David gets all mad. Well, that man better return to that guy what he's stolen. Four lambs for that lamb that he's taken. He says, he better return. And 2 Samuel 12, 6 is because he has done this thing, and has shown no pity, he must pay four lambs for that lamb. And then, you know, Nathan comes up to David and says, you're the man, you're that man who has stolen and taken. And David's like, whoa. And he's broken and contrite in his heart and he asks for forgiveness. And yet the consequences of that sin seems to be poured out. I'm not positive in in the exactness of all of this in some ways, but yet I find it fascinating that he says, you must pay four lambs for that lamb that you've taken. And that's exactly what it will happen to David, four of his sons will die. The son that was born of Bathsheba dies and then the two sons, Amnon and Absalom, are murdered and executed in horrific ways. And then eventually after David's death, Adonijah will be executed by Solomon, his son. I don't know if that is the immediate answer there, but I found that fascinating and a gripping in some way, a prophetic way the fallout of sin is, is, is impossible to measure and we cannot always know how far this sin will take us, but we know that is a place we don't wanna go. So the sorrow is gripping him as a father. Maybe he's becoming, in somewhat realizing what it is that he did now that he's experiencing and feeling in the justice of God's judgment upon his sin, even though the forgiveness of David and his throne will be restored and he, he will be faithful to the Lord, though that, is, is, is that covenant is kept and God remains faithful, this, the consequences are felt and it's messy. It's not easy. So Joab This, you know, Joab is this also very interesting character. He's one of those characters you read about and you're like, is he good or bad? And your answer is yes, (laughs) okay? He does a lot of good things and a lot of bad things. He is kind of an an assassin of sorts. He's a military general. And he also is a guy who speaks straight up to David when no one else will do this. He just speaks sense into David. And I literally, as I said earlier, I, could, I pictured Joab ticked. He's coming off the battlefield, just having led the, the armies to defeat 
Absalom and David's here crying over Absalom and he just comes up and slaps him in the face like, get it together, man. Pull it together, dude. Come on. I know you're sad, but you can't now weep and cause the entire nation to weep. Don't you understand? Everyone's going to leave you. (laughs) You must be a king. And so though it's difficult for him, I think in some ways Joab is right. And yet, yet also Joab is wrong. There is this, this complicated nature. And so he, he speaks truth into David's life. He tries to knock some sense into him. And then David goes out and leads the nation and seeks to, to kind of lead and be the king that they're all looking for. Because ultimately at this situation, we have uh, what's going to happen next in the next chapter David is going to try to reconstruct and restore the broken and fractured nation or the fractured kingdom, right? So so you're students of history, you're familiar with World War II and the Marshall Plan, maybe you've heard of that, the Marshall Plan of, I think it is uh, George C. Marshall, the Secretary of the United States at that time, the Secretary of State, sought to rebuild Europe in ways to spending 15 billion to help finance rebuilding efforts after World War II. You're like, well, the war is over, the war is won, everyone's celebrating, and yet, well, what do we do now? Well, that's what we have to do here. David has won the war, the throne is going to be restored, but what does he do now? He can't come down heavy-handed, because if he does, it's gonna further drive and fracture the nation. This is, in some ways, what we see Lincoln attempt to do with the Civil War. Maybe more of an accurate description of this situation because this is a literal civil war. The 10 northern tribes of Israel with Absalom and the southern tribes with Judah and David and the split between families and f- brothers killing brothers, cousins killing cousins, this, these tribal warfare. And in Lincoln and uh, Grant and the work that they did after the war had been won, and yet how do we restore the union? How do we reintegrate the southern, uh, the southern states? And how do we add them in without creating now two uh, divided states of America? How do we create one nation under God? How is it that we do this? And yet even at this point, as I'll notice later here in a moment, I guess I'm skipping ahead of myself, but there, just like Lincoln attempted to reunite the country, he was assassinated and tried to be taken out and it. That effort was tried to be stopped. And so Absalom, as he had stolen the hearts and led a coup, David has to do the same in reverse. He's got to win them back. And so the reconciled followers of Absalom, in a sense, he's trying to reconcile them. Amasa is this leader of Absalom's army, and he brings him back into the fold. He actually promotes him to the leader of David's army and demotes Joab for killing Absalom. So Amasa is now who was the leader of the northern tribes army. He is now the leader of all of the tribes is what he's trying to do and unite. He's being very political. He reconciles with Shimei. You'll see him in chapter 19. His, his name mentioned. Shimei has a thousand men with him. David has a very political and diplomatic conversation with him and says, you are, I'm not gonna kill you. Shimei was this guy screaming and berating and yelling and throwing stones at David when he was leaving just a few days prior. David was fleeing the city and Shimei says, you deserve this and he chucks stones at him and curses his name. Now a few days later, he comes groveling back and says, please forgive me, please forgive me, don't kill me. David could have easily killed him and executed and shown how powerful he is, but he forgives him and he says, I will not kill you. 
and he forgives him and he welcomes him back. We are all brothers in arms, you could say, is what he's trying to do. He's trying to unite the nation. Mephibosheth and Ziba, Ziba come up again and Mephibosheth is coming to David and saying, I, I've, I haven't literally, I haven't taken care of my feet. He was the crippled one. He haven't trimmed my mustache. I haven't washed my clothes. I haven't done any of this until you have been returned. And Mephibosheth reveals how Ziba had lied about him earlier. So David is showing extreme leadership and organization here and he leads. And then eventually what happens is someone recognizes that even though David is trying to reunite the nations, uh, the, the, the nation, that he was not going to have that. In chapter 20, we see that there's still this tension and there's this arguing of, is David the king we want to follow or not? And Sheba, chapter 20, 2 Samuel 20, verse 1 Now a wicked man, a Benjamite named Sheba, son of Bichri, happened to be there. (laughs) I love that. He happened to be there. You know, this guy has been probably plotting this for a long time. You know, and so he's positioned himself in a place where he can get power. You know, Absalom wasn't able to do it, but I will. I'll I'll, I'll finish what Absalom started. And there's a revolt of a traitor 2.0, you could say. And so here we go. He happened to be there and he blew the ram's horn and shouted, we have no portion in David, no inheritance in Jesse's son, each man to his tent, Israel, hurrah. I threw in the hurrah part. That wasn't there. But follow me, right? In a sense. And everyone's like, yeah, let's follow him. And everybody follows this loser, right? And David's like, what in the world? I'm trying to unite everybody. Let's all get along. And one guy gets up on a soapbox, screams and yells and follow me to victory. David is the worst, okay, is what he says. Second Samuel 20, verse two, and all the men of Israel deserted David and followed Sheba, the son of Bichri. But the men of Judah, the southern tribes from uh, the Jordan and all the way to Jerusalem remained loyal to the king. Love that. Remain loyal. And then I'll read verse three. It says, and David came to his palace in Jerusalem and he took, and this is a tender moment, he took the 10 concubines he had left to take care of the palace. He placed them under guard. He provided for them. He was not intimate with them and they were confined until the day of their death living as widows. There's this argument going on. They follow Sheba. These people are quick to follow whatever rebellion comes up. Whatever wind is taking them, they'll follow a leader who screams the loudest. The 10 tribes here that are running away are now, in a way, I think, foreshadowed by this picture in verse 3. You may be familiar with the story a few chapters ago where Absalom abuses these 10 concubines in public in front of everyone. And in this situation, it now pictures David returning to what is abused, broken, and lost. And he seeks to make and restore what what was done wrong. It says he protects them, he shelters them, he provides for them. This is a foreshadowing of what David is attempting to do with the 10 northern tribes. Notice, 10 tribes and 10 concubines. Here it is David coming in and sheltering and protecting what was been abused, broken, lost, and destroyed. Here now he is attempting to restore what was lost and bring peace and provision again like a good true king should have done from the very beginning. And so we see this, pass, this passage throughout this next chapter. There's this ultimate return and the restoration of King David to his throne. 
but it won't be without bloodshed. As was said, Amasa, who was made kind of the chief general in front of Joab, Amasa and Joab were both tasked with going after Sheba the traitor and to deal with him, figure this out. And so they, land a, they, they send a band of mighty men to chase Sheba down. Amasa goes first, but he's taking slower, and Joab catches up with him, and this is the approach that Joab takes with the traitor Amasa, even though Amasa has been forgiven and given amnesty by David. This is the interaction that takes place. Notice this. Verse uh, 8, and they were, there was a great stone in Gideon. This is uh, 2 Samuel 20, verse 8. In Gibeon, when Amasa joined them, Joab was wearing his uniform, and over it a belt around his waist and a sword in the sheath. So he approached, and the sword fell out. Joab asked Amasa, hey, are you well, my brother? Then with his right hand, Joab grabbed Amasa by the beard to kiss him, to give him a this is what would be the modern, a handshake and a welcome. Give them a hug. They're brothers. In fact, I think uh, cousins, I can't remember now. I get so good for these. The, the family trees get complicated. I should have put it in my notes. But Joab and Amasa, are, are you well with my brother, he says. And then he goes to kiss him and goes to hug him. Verse 10, Amasa was not on guard against the sword in Joab's hand. And Joab stabbed him in the stomach with it and spilled his intestines out onto the ground. I told you it doesn't sugarcoat things. Joab did not stab him again, and Amasa died. When I first read that, I was like, oh, that's nice. He didn't stab him again. Just stabbed him once. But in fact, it's, uh, it's worse. Joab wants to see Amasa suffer. And this is where the depravity of Joab and mankind is seen. Look at this. He, Joab and his brother Abishai pursued Sheba, the son of Bichri. And it says, verse 11, one of Joab's young men had stood over Amasa saying, whoever favors Joab and whoever is for David, follow Joab. Amasa's dead, right? Or dying. So let's follow David and follow Joab. And then verse 12, now Amasa had been writhing in his blood in the middle of the highway. And the man had seen that all the tr- uh, troops had stopped to look. So he dragged or moved Amasa from the highway to the field and threw a garment over him because he realized that everyone who had stopped was looking at him, Okay. This is a situation of murder along the street. There's an assassination that takes place. There's a disembowelment that takes place. There is pain. There is blood. There is, it's messy. It's messy. Was Amasa wrong? Yes. Was, has he been forgiven and restored? Yes. Is Joab right in seeking vengeance? In some ways you could say, yeah, he deserves it. He got what's coming for him, right? But isn't that been the whole point of this whole study? David could have given to Saul what he had coming for him many times over, but he chose constantly to allow God to lead and direct that and not take the kingdom into his own hands and not allow pride and power to infect him in such a way that it would destroy his ability to minister or lead by taking everything into his own hand and coming down with a heavy fist. And this, this power and pride literally devours Joab in such a way that he goes after it in this destructive way. You could say this is kind of a northern tribes, uh, northern, uh, the, the Union versus the Confederates. This is a John Wilkes Booth moment coming and shooting Lincoln in the head. 
This is the Hatfields and the McCoys. You kill us, I kill you. You kill us, I kill you. We go back and forth for generations and generations and generations. The lust for revenge and power, the infighting, the backbiting, the backbiting and the backstabbing. And notice it's in your notes as well. We don't have time to get into it today, but this is what so often is uh, one of the areas that I think we have to protect against. For notice what we have so much, the most content, at least to me, the most content in David's life is about the fighting and the infighting that goes on within their family and the nation of Israel. Notice not a lot of content has been shared about the Philistines, the Amorites, (laughs) the other enemies, but about the family and the infighting, the backstabbing, and the, the struggle within. Is that not so much of our issue? We often always point fingers out there. Those people, the world, the culture, yada, yada, yada. And yet so often we need to have the unity within us as the people of God. John 17, Jesus prayed that we would be one. And that is the goal here, that we would desire to be one nation under one king, the king of kings, the Lord of lords. And then it runs into this situation where eventually they hunt uh, uh, Sheba down to the city of Abel, and they, um, they find him there, and a, uh, a, it's a comical thing, but uh, Joab starts basically trying to lay siege to the city and knock all the walls down and destroy the whole city, and it says a wise woman came out and spoke to Joab and says, what are you doing? <laughs> like, stop trying to bang your head against a wall. Let me just go and get Sheba for you, and he's like, oh, yeah, I didn't think of that, right? So never send, right, what is it, a, a man to do a woman's job or something like that, and so she goes in, and they get their people together, and they literally uh, this is another crazy situation. They literally cut off Sheba's head and they chuck it over the wall to uh, Joab to take back to David. And so my point is, the situation gets messy, messy, and messier. Now Sheba is gone, Absalom is gone, everyone is dead essentially, and David returns to the throne. He is reinstalled to the throne and it is now gonna be work to reinstall the nation, but the Israel and the Judah are united And then we get this unique chapter in 21. I'm not gonna read it for you, but you can look through it as you can. But there's this unique chapter, 21, where it details not only the fallout of David's sin and the chapters leading up to this, but now it reminds us of the fallout of Saul's sin. Saul sinned gravely in a variety of situations. In chapter 21, it details one of his sins where he slaughtered the Gibeonites, people that Joshua had previously made a treaty with. And Joshua had made a treaty with that these people would be treated as the nation of Israel and treated as such. No longer foreigners, but they would be people among us. God had made a covenant promise with them and with Joshua and the Gibeonites. Saul took it upon himself to wipe them out and destroy them and killed many of their people. They are sorrowing and God sends a famine into the land. And David says these words to the Gibeonites, how can I make atonement? for what has been done against you. And I find it a verse, it's chapter 21, verse three. It's a verse that kind of rings out into my ears. David, this anointed one, who has failed greatly in a variety of ways, trying to cover up the sin of a certain king that has failed in other great ways. And David says, how can I make this right? Now they choose a situation, it doesn't even seem to be right. And often when you're reading the Old Testament, just because something is descriptive does not mean it's prescriptive, right? Just because the Bible describes something taking place doesn't mean that that's something we ought to do and think is good. 
So in fact, what they say is, well, give us seven of Saul's relatives. They take seven of Saul's relatives and they hang them as atonement for the sin of Saul. The Bible doesn't say this was right or wrong. In fact, it alludes to the fact that this is probably not right. But eventually, David then sees the sorrow that this has caused of killing more people for the death uh, have already been killed. And, and so he takes the bones of Saul and Jonathan and he gives them a honorable burial. And when he gives them an honorable burial in a, uh, in a place where they should be laid, God removes the famine and provides life again where there was death. It's a story that it just struck me and it stri- strikes me because it's a situation I, w- I think that we're all left in where we've felt just for the last 20 to 30 minutes we have felt the effects of sin. We have felt the cover-up and the, the disembowelment, the executions, the beheadings, the, the bloodshed, the demise, the bitterness, the revenge, the treachery, the rape, the evil, <laughs> the messiness and the complicated nature of sin and the consequences of it. And we feel this like a, like a chemical explosion, that radiation of that explosion in Genesis 3, it touches us today. And apart from Christ, we have this, this radiation sickness within us. We have a cancer that grows within us. Our hands are just as bloody as Saul and David. So often we read the Old Testament in myself, in my own pride, I think, wow, David was messed up. Wow, Saul was messed up. I'm glad I'm not like them, right? You ever read that? In fact, what we see in these chapters is a mirror for our lives. It's like I look at myself. You and I and our world today is no different than this world back then. We just like to casually avoid these things, like a Bruno that we don't talk about, right? And so now we need something totally different to change. We need someone to come and rescue us from this situation There is a situation that we can do about it. (laughs) We can't do anything on our own, for the fallout of sin has left us radioactive, right? You could say the ripple effects of sin are more like the tsunamis surging across the ocean of our lives, crashing down upon the relationships that we hold dear and the ones we love most. It destroys and affects the exclusion zone of our sin and our disobedience against God. It only harms and brings death. And maybe some of you are experiencing that this morning. Maybe potentially you're actually living in that place where you you feel the fallout of sin. Maybe you, your sin or maybe your father's sin or your person before you, you, have, you are experiencing the fallout of that. And then, then we say, well, what's hope for me? What's the good news? What, what can I do about that? Well, essentially, we can do nothing apart from Christ for sin in our life is that radiation that will bring death. Yet, what's so beautiful about the gospel and the good news is that sin does not have the final word. Sin and, and the blood guilt does not have the final word. As Hebrews says, the blood of Abel that has been shed. That Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which says better things. It speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Abel was murdered by his brother. This bloodshed, this murder that takes place. Yet that's not the final word. There speaks a better word, the blood of Jesus Christ. A better Abel, a better David, a a better sacrifice. I want to close by reading Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10, verse 10 is a 
passage my heart went to this week as I was trying to figure out how to land this message of difficulty and challenge because there's beautiful restoration found in Jesus in the gospel good news. Hebrews 10 verse 10 says this, for by this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the blood of Jesus Christ once for all time. Every priest stands day after day ministering and offering the same sacrifices time after time. You could say king after king has come. Saul and David and the many kings after. Who will lead us? Who will be our king? Who will be the sacrifice to finally take away our sins once and for all? Because verse 11 says those sacrifices could never take away sin. Verse 12 Hebrews 10, 12, but this man, after offering one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. He is now waiting until his enemies are made his footstool, for by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Verse 15, and the Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this, for after he says, and this is quoting some of the covenant God made with David in verse 16, And in Jeremiah 31, it says this, this is the covenant I will make with them in those days. The Lord says, I will put my laws on their hearts, write them in their minds. And get this, verse 17. I will never again remember their sins and lawless acts. Now where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. Verse 19 says, therefore brothers and sisters, This is what, they're for church, brothers and sisters. Since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, he has inaugurated for us a new and living way. There's a better way, a new way. And it is all through the curtain that has been torn that is through his flesh. Verse 21, and since we now have a great high priest over the house of God. Verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. Did you see the contrast? The bloodshed, the murder, the evil, the fallout of sin, now washed, purified, sanctified, cleansed through the blood of Jesus Christ. We sing often here, thank you, Jesus, for the blood applied. Thank you, Jesus, for you have washed me white. Thank you, Jesus, for you have saved my life, brought me from darkness into glorious light, and that is how we come before the communion table today. We come before that table having been washed, purified, cleansed, and sanctified. God is doing this through his spirit within us, and so we're gonna take the next couple of moments to focus on that, to focus on on our sin, these areas that need to be confessed and asked for forgiveness, and yet these areas that we know the gospel of Jesus Christ has rectified and sanctified us and cleansed us and restored and reconciled us from, that Jesus in his way has come to be our king who makes full atonement once and for all. Let me close in prayer, and then we will come before the table as the elders and deacons will come. Father, we come to you today knowing God that you're good and knowing God that we need forgiveness. We, our sins though they are many, your mercy is more. We thank you Jesus for the blood that has washed away my sins. For Jesus you have paid it all 
These are words and statements and things we say. God, we mean it and we believe it today. Thank you, Lord, for your table that reminds us we don't have to be cast and shunned afar off, but we're welcomed together. To come before a table as one, one family who puts our differences aside and comes together to eat together in your presence. You welcome us. You invite us to come to the table today. In Jesus' name we thank you.